Yeah, I forgot. Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, it has the four points of that gospel presentation that I talked about last week, uh, being God, man, Christ, and response. Uh, and today I'm going to be kind of building on that. Well, I am going to be building on it. Um, so that's why I gave that handout. And on that handout are also some verse references. Uh, just in case you guys want to use this as like a reference sheet or something, it could be something that's very useful uh, in the future. Um, and then also, I just want to mention that there's uh, two books, or really one book, that were really helpful for me. Uh, originally, as I was kind of trying to grow in my faith, and then now again as I was trying to uh, prepare this lesson. One of them is called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. It's like 120 pages, and it's actually, I didn't bring it, but it's about this big, so it's 120 pages, but they're small. So it's a pretty easy read. And then the other one is more of a devotional book. It's called A Gospel Primer uh, from Milton Vincent. And that's been uh, something that's been really helpful with me too. Uh, so I know that I already mentioned this, but last week I had summarized the gospel message. And I had broken it up into four parts. Uh, and that was God, man, Christ, and man's response. I didn't really go into too much detail about why each point is important or give the verses to support each point. Uh, but this week I really want to take the time to focus on each part. Uh, with, with some of the verses that support it and explain why each piece of it is important. Uh, like I mentioned last week, the gospel is the message that God has entrusted us with and it is not a responsibility that we should uh, be taking lightly. This is shown, uh, we'll read it again, in Galatians chapter, eight, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Uh, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary, uh, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So the first part, the first part of that four-point gospel message is God. So today, especially here in the Northeast, there are a lot of people who either have no understanding of God, they have a wrong understanding of God, or they just deny the existence of God entirely. So most people today, when you talk to them about God, you're going to get probably one of four different responses. The first is that God is love, and because of that, he's not going to judge anyone for their actions. <clears throat> the second might be along the lines of that God is angry, and he doesn't care about his creation anymore, and they'll talk about things like natural disasters and cancer. Uh, and the third is going to be a denial of God entirely, which would be an atheist. Or the last response might be that they do believe in a God with a lowercase g, and that's either another religion, or maybe aliens or something. So since God is the beginning point and the foundation of the gospel, uh, of the gospel, there are some key things that we need to be able to explain. The study of who God is and knowing about his attributes and really having a relationship with him is something that takes an entire lifetime to do. And it is something that we're never going to be able to fully understand. However, there are certain points and certain basic things that we should be able to comprehend and be able to explain. So the first, uh, the first part of that is that God is the creator. The creation narrative is something that, unfortunately, even today, is challenged within churches and by Christians. For example, there are some people who believe that God kind of set things in order, and then he kind of just took his hands off things, and evolution took over from that point forward. An atheist or a non-believer would be a person who says that God had absolutely no involvement in creation whatsoever. So to say that God had no or very limited involvement in creation would be to say that the creation does not belong to God. Uh, to, 
yeah, the verses or passages that support this point about God being the creator are verses that I think we're all familiar with. And that will be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, and then 26 and 27. So Genesis 1.1 reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is when God created man. And it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So because God is the creator, this means two things. <clears throat> First is that there is a purpose for everything that has been created, and nothing just exists by random chance or uh, for absolutely no purpose. The second is that because God is the creator, he has ownership over his creation. This ownership means two things. The first is that he has the right to do with his creation as he chooses. Uh, two verses to look at, Isaiah 64, 8. We are the clay, and you are potter, and all we are the work of your hand. And then Paul in Romans nine twenty one says, uh, Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So the second thing uh, that I want to touch on that goes with God's ownership of his creation is that he is the one who gives commands... Uh, sets the standards, and that he is the one who is in control and determines uh, what the consequences are when those commands and standards are broken. So a passage that my dad had mentioned last week uh, that I want to look at is Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. So in this passage, uh, it shows two things about God. The first being his love for his creation in verse 6, and the second is his holiness and judgment of sin. As I said in the introduction, some people have a tendency to focus on, on either too much of God's love or they focus on too much of, uh, of God's wrath. So there really does need to be a balance of both. Uh, Alvin, are you? Oh, no. Uh, I'll just read. Uh, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, Keeping mercy, for thousands, uh, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So in this passage, we clearly see from the attributes that are listed about God in the beginning half uh, of this passage that God is not a God who is full of wrath, looking for any possible opportunity to destroy his creation. It's actually the exact opposite. We see that God is patient and God is merciful with his disobedient creation. So we can look at verses like John 3.16, which is a very popular verse, and Romans 5.8, which both also show exact, uh, just how much God loves us. That he was willing to send his son to die on the cross for our sins and to restore that broken relationship despite our disobedience. So we also see in the last part of the passage that God does not let the guilty go unpunished. This is because he is a holy God. And we can see that in uh, two verses that I want to look at in Leviticus, which is in chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. It's a very short verse, or a very short section of that verse. Be holy, for I am holy. And this is actually uh, a statement that's repeated throughout the, throughout the book of Leviticus, or really throughout the entire Bible, just kind of maybe worded in different ways. 
So because God is holy, there is no sin that can enter into his presence, and he must judge those who are guilty of it. Praise God, because of his love and mercy towards creation, that he did provide a way to restore that broken relationship, and I'm going to get into that, into that a little bit later when I talk about Christ. So this is another part where people tend to make mistakes. They put a lot, a lot of stress on being saved or delivered from our sins, saying that Jesus will deliver us from our sins, like here on earth will deliver us from our sins, uh, or that we're going to be freed from the burdens of this life. Those things can be byproducts of salvation, uh, but they are not the main point when we are presenting the gospel. We are saved from the consequences of sin, which is God's judgment and wrath, not delivered from our sins here on earth. Uh, so the fourth part that I want to touch on about God is the command that God gave to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So this is important to mention, because with no explanation of a command being given, uh, that means that there's no explanation of how a command could have been broken, then there's no explanation of how sin entered into the world, and it just snowballs. Then there's no explanation for why we would need a Savior. So that's the last part of, about God, uh, and it actually leads up to the second point, uh, which is man. So there are four points uh, that also have to be brought up uh, when we're talking about man. <clears throat> the first is that man sinned. The second are the consequences of that sin. The third is how it spread to all men. And the fourth point is how man is totally incapable of saving himself. Um, yeah, saving himself from the consequences of sin, which would be both physical death and eternal, repent and, uh, eternal separation from God. So there are some things that I want to address before I get into this topic. The first is that this is where people commonly like to twist things and they say that they don't want to offend anyone. Um, yeah, that they don't want to offend anyone by confronting them about their sins. If a person chooses to leave that part out, they are tam tampering with the gospel, which is a big problem. The second mistake that people make is having the wrong understanding or the wrong view of man. The belief now seems to be that man is inherently good, but sometimes he does things wrong and some people are worse than others. This also is not true, and I'm going to explain that a little bit more later. So the first point is that Adam sinned. Like I had just mentioned, in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God gave a command to Adam for him to follow. I'm pretty sure that we are all familiar uh, with the fall of man, which is found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. So I'm not going to be reading through that passage, but I will kind of just give a quick summary. Uh, we know that uh, the serpent deceived Eve. Eve eats the fruit. She gives it to Adam. Adam then eats the fruit, and then God comes down to confront them about their sin, and they all just sit there and blame each other. Uh, nobody takes responsibility for their actions. <clears throat> and uh, this is the action that introduced sin into the world and leads to the next point, which is the consequences of that sin. So if we look at Genesis 3, verses 14 through 24, uh, this is where we can read about the consequences of the consequences of the sin which was committed by Adam. In verses 14 and 15, we see the, uh, that the consequences are stated for the serpent, or really for Satan. And uh, verse 15 actually turns out to be a curse for Satan, but it is the ultimate blessing for us. Uh, and in verse 16, we read the consequences for Eve, who will now have pain in childbearing, and there will be conflict between man and woman regarding the authority. And I think we can see that a little bit today. 
So the third person that is cursed is Adam in verses 17 through 19. In these verses, the ground, or really all creation, is cursed. His labor will now be toilsome. And lastly, death has entered into the world, meaning a physical death. So verse 24 is really the ultimate consequence uh, when Adam and Eve are then driven out of the garden. And this is showing the separation between God and man. So the third part uh, that I want to touch on is to show how sin and its corruption spread to all men and really to all creation as well. So we can look at a verse like Romans 5.12, which shows that sin and its consequences spread to all men. And it reads, Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Then we can look at Romans 8.20-22, and this talks about how the consequences spread to creation. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So these two verses and the explanation are important for two reasons. The first, uh, the first is because it explains why the world is the way that it is today. And it gives evidence that this is something that is real. That the consequences of sin are something that has really negatively impacted the world today. And it also explain, it explains things, uh, why there is so much wickedness in the world, and why things like diseases or natural disasters uh, are occurring. Again, it just kind of drives things home and really gets the point across that you're not talking about some sort of nonsense. It gives an explanation uh, for these things. So creation was never meant to be this way, but because of sin, those consequence, consequences spread to every man and every single part of creation. The second reason is that it shows everyone is under God's judgment because of sin. If someone needs further evidence of uh, why, they are, why they are under judgment for their sins, you can turn to the Ten Commandments, which are in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, that's usually a great place to start. And then once that's connected to a verse like Matthew 5, verses 27 to 28, where Jesus is uh, talking about the commandments, and he says, even if you thought about committing adultery with someone's wife, you've, or even if you look at a woman lustfully, You've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So it shows that even just that thought of breaking one of those commandments is enough to, um, to, have, to have to be judged by God. So this really drives the point home of what Paul says in Romans, 3, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this is actually going to lead to the next part. Uh, the next point about man, that is that no one can do anything in their own power to be able to justify themselves before God. And if we look at Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, uh, these are popular verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we see that man cannot save himself, and there's two reasons for this. The first is because God is holy, and the covering for sin needs to be a perfect sinless sacrifice, and we just heard that in Romans, all have sinned, and the second is because people believe that they can justify themselves before God by doing good deeds. They cannot justify themselves because God does not judge us based on how much good we have done in our lives. And uh, even if he did, there's no amount of good that we could do to outweigh even the smallest sin. So if we look at Isaiah 64.6, we see, uh, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. 
So even the things that we are doing, which we think are good deeds that can justify ourselves before God, whether that's giving to the church, whether that's donating to a children's hospital, um, you know, whatever it may be, it doesn't count as goodness to God because even those righteous deeds that we think we're doing uh, are like filthy rags. And even if we look at uh, Paul in Philippians chapter 3, he's writing about how, uh, how if anyone should have confidence in the flesh and confidence of the works, it should be him. And he goes through and he lists off a whole bunch of things that he has accomplished in his life. These are, um, these are things where he's been trying to justify himself. He talks about how he has managed to keep the law. He was a Jew. Um, he, was, he was a Pharisee. <clears throat> and he, you know, like I said, he lists through all these things. And he admits that none of these things are enough to justify him before God. So he says that he has counted all things lost, his works based on the law, his status as a Jew and a Pharisee, and why has he, ta- why has he counted these things lost? For the sake of knowing Christ and being justified by faith in Christ and not by a righteousness of his own. So Paul recognized that even with a resume like his, he could not justify himself before God. It was only by faith in Christ. So now this is going to lead into the third point of that four-point gospel presentation. Um, that if we cannot save ourselves from if we cannot save ourselves from the consequences of sins, um, then what can or who can? And this is Jesus Christ. Uh, so before I get there, I'm kind of like at the halfway point, I guess. So I don't know if anyone has any questions or has anything that they want to add. We'll give a second or two for that. Uh, so the third point that I want to hit on, like I said, is Christ. And the first thing that I want to do is actually go back and look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So Genesis 3.15 reads, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So I would mentioned this verse a little bit earlier when I was talking about um, the different curses that were pronounced in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and like I said, this is a curse for Satan, but it is the ultimate blessing. It is the ultimate blessing for us. So this is the first mention of a coming Savior who is Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ also goes back to the passage which we had read in Exodus chapter 34, uh, because it is how God has forgiven the iniquity and transgression, uh, yeah, the iniquity and transgression and sin. The important things to cover about Christ are that He is fully man and fully God. Uh, the fact that he lived a perfect sinless life and his death and resurrection on the cross. So both points about Christ needing to live a sinless life, meaning he had to perfectly obey the entire law, and his needing to be both human and God can really be tied together uh, into one point. The fact that Christ needed to be fully human and fully God is something that we really aren't able to fully understand, but it is something that is very important for us to mention. Christ needed to be fully man in order to be tempted as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15, and also to be able to die a physical death. But if Christ was born of a man, that would, that would have been meant that he was corrupted by sin, which is what we had read earlier, that all men are corrupted by sin, uh, and he would not be able to be the perfect sacrifice before which God requires. So this is the reason for the virgin birth. By being born of God and not of man, we can look at Luke 1, uh, 34 and 35 for that, Christ still is fully God and has the same power and attributes of God, which means that he has the power over sin and death, and that he has, uh, has the ability to, well, that he cannot sin, 
because he is God and God cannot sin. But by being born of a woman, this is what makes him fully human. This is what makes him in the flesh. So for the next two points about Christ's Christ's death and resurrection, I want to take a look at... um, Sean, if you could turn to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 3 through 8. Uh, So that's the passage that we're going to be in, is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. And this, in my opinion, is probably one of the uh, best passages to turn to if we want to cover Christ's death and resurrection. So, Sean, when you get there, if you could read it, just verses 3 to 8. For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. <clears throat> all right, so there's a lot of things that are covered. Uh, in that short little passage, we see Christ's, Christ's death and his resurrection, and we see the fact that it was according to the scriptures. Uh, And what we also see in that passage is that there's proof of the resurrection, that there were a lot of people that saw that Christ was raised to the dead. So it does really give us that assurance um, of what what our faith is. So uh, we have to make sure that we mention that Christ, in the flesh, suffered, bled, and died on the cross, bearing the full wrath of God and paying the penalty for our sins. We know from Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. So there is only one way that the debt of sin could be paid. And that was through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So the importance of the resurrection is that it shows that Christ has victory over both sin and death. And it proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be. So I think that Paul says it very well in the passage which we just read from 1 Corinthians. And I think also in uh, 1 Corinthians 15-17 it really touches on the importance of the resurrection. And how it is uh, so key to what it is that we believe. If, no, no, I, I can read it. Because <clears throat> it's just one verse. Uh, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So the resurrection is a really important part of the gospel message. And I know sometimes some people just leave it out or say that it's not that important. But it really is the key. Because if Christ is not risen, then there is no forgiveness of sins. Because there is no victory over both death and sin. So now we're going to move on to the response. And as I mentioned last week, uh, there are really only two possible responses to the gospel message. The first is faith in Christ and repentance, which leads to salvation. And the second is a rejection of these truths, which leads to damnation. So I'm not going to get into the topic of election, uh, because it is something that I think we've covered uh, at length, either from the pulpit or here in Sunday school. Um, And I know that it has also been covered pretty recently, like I said, um, from the pulpit. So I think people have a pretty good grasp on it. So in short, we know that uh, either of these two responses was determined by God before the foundations of the earth. And that it is not dependent at all on us. It is entirely the working of God in in salvation. So it does not matter how convincing of an argument we, we may have. It doesn't matter how exciting the service was or how great the worship band is. Uh, Joey, can you turn to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6? So this passage that we're going to look at is um, 
Paul kind of addressing the way that he would handle uh, the gospel message or the way to properly handle it. So, Joey, can you read that? Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced this graceful, underhanded way. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we will commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perished. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, thank you, Joey. So it is clear from this passage that Paul... Uh, It's clear from what Paul writes here that it is not okay for us to be tampering with the gospel to suit a specific audience uh, or to try to really convince someone. It is not okay to try to deceive people into hearing the gospel by inviting them to some big event where the gospel is something that's just kind of on the side or it's tacked on at the end. And, And the main focus of that is more entertainment than presenting the gospel. If people are to be doing events like that, the gospel should be what is the main focus of that event. So both of, the, both of these things Paul actually refers to as disgraceful and underhanded ways. What is the reason that Paul was opposed to using these kinds of methods in evangelism? Because the fact of the matter is that no matter how appealing or convincing we can try to make the gospel message, uh, it makes absolutely no difference to how that message will be received by different people. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So whether we add fireworks, whether we incorporate some, sort of, incorporate some sort of worldly wisdom, or we make the gospel more seeker-friendly or less offensive, it does not change who will or who will not be saved. If we do compromise the message to be more seeker-friendly, it can end up giving people a false hope, and that's ultimately doing more damage than good. So why should we change the gospel message, which we have been entrusted with, and run the risk of getting ourselves into trouble if it does not change the outcome? We need to do what Paul did and preach the open statement of the truth. Then we will commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. If we look at all the examples of evangelism throughout the book of Acts or in the four gospels, it is always the word of God that is being preached and the word of God that is their central message. This should be our method as well. So, uh, also keeping with that response, uh, I do want to take some time to look at the word repentance and uh, touch on its definition and some of the misunderstandings that come around that word uh, repentance. So, the definition in the Greek is a radical changing of one's thinking. In the Hebrew, it has the definition to turn around and go in the opposite direction. The two definitions, they differ slightly between the Greek and the Hebrew, the Greek having more of a focus on the mindset and the Hebrew having more of a focus on the actions. But if we combine, if we combine these two definitions together, we get uh, our biblical definition of true repentance. It's a changing of the mind and a changing of our, of our actions. So there are two things that we change our minds about when we place our faith in Christ. The first is the recognition that we are sinners and we cannot save ourselves. The second is turning from a rejection of God in Christ to an acceptance of Christ as our Lord and Savior, and recognizing that He is the, uh, is the only way that we can be saved. 
To change your mind about just one of these things would not be true biblical repentance. You can't say that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, but then also say, I'm not a sinner. Those two things can't, can't go together. So one of the misunderstandings of repentance is that faith in Christ and repentance can be separated. That they can be two different things. <clears throat> repentance is a result of the faith that God has allowed us to have. The two have to go together, and I want to read two verses that say this very clearly. The first is in Mark 1, uh, verse 15. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the second is Paul in Acts 26.20. Repent and turn to God. So another misunderstanding of repentance is not making the distinction between the two types of repentance. The first is a repentance that is a result of faith, and that's changing our mind about the fact that we are sinners and changing our minds about who God is. And the second is repentance that we have as a believer, which is part of the sanctification process. So the sanctification uh, process has three parts to it. The first is positional sanctification or justification. And this is what happens at the moment of conversion. Uh, and this is when we are made holy before God, and it is His work entirely. The second part is known as progressive sanctification. Uh, and this is something that begins immediately after conversion and continues throughout our entire lives. This is the transforming work of the Holy Spirit that is within us. As the Spirit convicts us of different things in our lives, we need to be willing to yield to the Spirit, and we need to be willing to make those changes. Uh, this is not something that is going to happen at the same rate for every Christian. Uh, people are going to be convicted of different things at different points in their lives. Um, but again, as people grow in their faith, there should be uh, some evidence of change. Uh, I'm sure that this is something that you can attest to in your own lives. I know that I can definitely attest of it uh, in mine. As I've grown in my faith, as i studied the Word, uh, I have been convicted in different areas and realized that there are changes that have, that have to be made. So the last part of sanctification is glorification. This is where we finally go home to be with the Lord, and we are there in His presence with sinless bodies, um, and they're uh, worshiping Him forever. So the reason that I bring both of these points up is because there are different schools of thought on whether repentance is included um, with salvation or not. Um, and there are two or three different schools of thought on the relationship between faith, repentance, and sanctification. One, is, one connects the two so closely together that it basically makes a change of behavior a condition for salvation. Meaning that in addition to having faith, a person must also have works and must also have that evidence uh, of, of their conversion. And that's impossible to do because you can't set a standard for how sanctification should work in every person's life. So, uh, so the works that people are looking for is evidence basically that that person is not sinning. Uh, for example, if a person is struggling with gossip, someone who believes this way would say that if they are continuing to gossip, then they clearly must not be saved. The problem is we cannot judge that person's heart, and who knows, they may just be having an off day that day. So this mindset can lead to a very legalistic lifestyle, and instead of doing things because we love God, uh, we end up doing things trying to validate our salvation either to ourselves or to those that are, that are around us. So this also leads to a really negative atmosphere of people just judging each other's behaviors uh, and questioning each other's salvation. There is some truth here, uh, but not when it is taken to the far extreme, like the example that I had given. So the second is the complete opposite. It so far separates the two things uh, that people believe you can be saved and that there is no need for there to be a change in your life. 
So as long as I confess with my mouth that Jesus, that Jesus is my Savior, I can do whatever I want and I'm still saved. But Matthew 6.24 says otherwise. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. So they would say that if someone decides to confess Christ as Lord, then that's when the progressive sanctification process would begin. Professing Christ as Lord and professing Christ as Savior are, are not two things that can be separated. To deny Christ as your Lord is to deny part of who he is, and this would mean not having true faith in, in who Christ sa- says that he is. So if, if we admit that Christ is our Savior from the punishment of sin, but then say that we are going to continue living in sin, then have we really changed our minds about sin? No, we have not, and this is not true repentance. So the third school of thought is what I think myself and I think we as a church believe, uh, is that it is somewhere in the middle between those, these two things, but it is closer to that first viewpoint. There should be evidence in our lives of the faith that we have. Uh, there should be evidence in our lives of the faith that we have in Christ. Uh, two verses that we can look at for that are Acts 26.20, Repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance, and Luke 6. Luke 6, verses 40, 44 and 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. So that evidence or the fruit that's in our lives is a result of our faith and repentance, not the condition of our faith and salvation. It is also not in our power that these changes are going to be happening but the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Uh, Since we have changed our minds about sin, acknowledging that it is wrong, then we should hate sin and and therefore turn away from it. We can also read about this change in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is writing here uh, how because we are in Christ, we should put on the new man uh, who does not live a life the same way that the world does in an ignorance of God. So, just to kind of try to summarize things, uh, I know that I covered a lot of information, um, but I do really hope that, you know, these last two weeks I've been up here teaching, and maybe some of the handouts or some of the verses, uh, you know, that God can use that to kind of give you guys some clarity in your lives, because I know that throughout the year, and even throughout these last two weeks of me preparing for these lessons, God has brought, in, brought a lot of clarity uh, to me, and I know that I've learned a lot, uh, so I hope that it's a blessing to you the same way uh, that it has been for me. So just to kind of try to summarize things, um, the first point that I touched on was God, the fact that he is holy, he is the creator, he loves his creation and hates sin. Uh, And we also have to mention that God, uh, the command that God gave to Adam. Uh, The second point that I touched on was man, Adam broke the command that God gave him. Um, We also have to mention that all men are sinful and no man can do anything to justify himself before God. Uh, The third point that I had touched on was Christ. Uh, We need to talk about how, because of God's love for his creation, he sent Christ. Uh, Christ was fully man and fully God. Um, Yeah, and that uh, Christ needed to suffer, to die and pay the penalty for our sins, and that the resurrection uh, shows victory over sin and death. The fourth thing that I touched on was the response, um, that there's either going to be one of two responses, repentance or rejection, and we cannot change how someone will receive the gospel. That is entirely up to God, and because of this, we should never compromise the gospel message. And then the fifth thing that I had touched on was that there, there is a difference between sanctification and repentance, but the two are 
working together. So that's what I have for this week, and I'm going to ask um, Mikey if you could close us in prayer, and then go from there. Dear God, thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you that you just let us uh, all come here um, today, Lord, and just uh, see what we spoke to, uh, spoke to Dom uh, uh, teach us, Lord. Um, I thank you that Dom just um, is growing in your uh, in this faith, Lord, and learning more about you and really taking this serious, Lord. And I pray that for um, all of us that Dom can be an example uh, for us, Lord, and that you can use him in um, our ways. And I pray that. What Dom talked about today, that you can just um, uh, let us all apply to our life, Lord, and I pray for uh, Pastor that whatever he's going to teach us, Lord, that you can just uh, use him and have us all learn something from it, Lord, and I pray that we have a good day in his name. Amen. 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 Yeah.